Good morning, everybody. How's everyone doing? Good, enjoying the long weekend? I hear there was a big storm last night. I slept right through it. Sorry if you uh, lost power or internet or anything like that. It is Pentecost Sunday, so uh, it seems appropriate to be considering great surges of power. I uh, hope your internet comes back online shortly. Um, I don't know about uh, you guys. I don't know if anyone here knows anything about Riverdance. I uh, recently had the great fortune of going to watch Riverdance at the BIC with my lovely wife, Vix. Now, I enjoy the arts as much as the next guy, but uh, I wouldn't call myself the world's biggest Irish folk dance fan. So uh, when Vix came home and said, great news, I've got a tickets for Riverdance, my response wasn't exactly what she was hoping for, shall we say. Anyway, off we went to watch Riverdance, and two, hour, two hours went by, and to be fair, there were some pretty spectacular moments of athleticism and musical talent, but admittedly, I did actually spend a lot of the time kind of zoned out, thinking about different ways in which I could have spent my evening. And so when the end came, instead of leaping to my feet with tears in my eyes like everyone else, I just kind of sat there shaking my head and shrugging. And of course, Vix very politely asked me what the heck my problem was, and I replied that I just didn't get it. I didn't, didn't understand why I just spent two hours sat watching people in green spandex jumping up and down on a stage to the sound of a panpipe. It just didn't make any sense to me whatsoever. And it was only as uh, we were walking to the car later on, continuing our polite discourse, that uh, Vix explained to me that you do realize that this whole story is about the evolution of the Irish settlers as various cultures merge in together like a river. And in that moment, I had a light bulb. I was like, why didn't they just say that at the start? I would have understood the whole thing then. It would have made a whole lot more sense. And of course, when you think about river dance, of course, you naturally think about the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, don't you? Good, yeah. That's where we're uh, going to be today. Uh, but realistically, the only comparison between Riverdance and Ezekiel is that they are both full of fascinating and confusing and terrifying and awesome scenes and visions and experiences that unless you understand the whole story, the whole picture, you probably won't understand at all. So, and I really want you to understand Ezekiel because I think it's a book that is full of hope and faith-building stories that tell us something about the richness of God and how he works out his plan for humanity through even the lowest points in human history. So, lest you fall into my baffled river dance experience, I'm going to start off by giving you some context uh, to explain something of the times in which the book was set. And then I'm going to give you an overview of the book itself. And as we go, I'll look at various ways in which it's appropriate and uh, helpful for us in the here and now. Now, if you've been around for the last season, which most of you would have done, would have been at Gateway, you'll know that we've been working through the Old Testament, and as we've done so, there has been for some time amongst God's people, Israel, an increase in rebellion and uh, um, rebellion against God's ways and in the worship of idols and in the toleration of wickedness in their culture. It's been a kind of a, an ongoing downward, downward spiral. And into this, for generations, the prophets have been warning the people to turn from their ways, to return to the right worship of God and to clean up their act. Otherwise, there's going to be consequences. In fact, the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah and Habakkuk all specifically prophesy that unless the people sort this out, then two things are going to happen. 
Firstly, they prophesy that the nation will be destroyed by the much more powerful Babylon, which is a global superpower hundreds of miles away. And secondly, the people will be deported. They'll be taken captive by the Babylonians into the land of Babylon. And in spite of this, the people continue to disobey and worship false gods. And lo and behold, in 597 BC, the Babylonians do come and they conquer Jerusalem and they leave the weakest part of Jerusalem society behind in the city and they install a a Babylonian governor over them and they take the cream of Israelite society, including this man Ezekiel, and they march them hundreds of miles across the Middle East and Asia into Babylon, into captivity, where they are made to integrate into Babylonian society. And this is known as the exile of God's people. Certainly it's the first phase of it at least. And whilst this isn't exactly a pleasant experience for them, as exiles go, it's still relatively mild at this stage. So that's the kind of historical background against which the book is set. But as we look at the flow of the book of Ezekiel, it'll be helpful to log that what's about to happen, everything that's about to happen, can be explained by a phrase that is repeated 74 times in the book, so that they may know that I am God. Everything that Ezekiel is about to do on behalf of God, <clears throat> excuse me, and everything that's about to happen to the Israelites is meant that they know that he alone is God. Not the false gods that are so captured their attention and caused their downfall. And so in the first movement of the book, we get this picture of these, exiled, uh, these exiles and Ezekiel living on the banks of a river in Babylon, hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem. And uh, Ezekiel gets this extraordinary vision of God in all his glory right there with him in Babylon. Ezekiel 1, verse 1 to 4. While I was among the exiles by the river Kibar, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. Verse 4. I looked and I saw a violent storm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire were what looked like four living creatures. And above the creatures held up by them is a throne of gemstone. And on that throne is a figure like that of a man. It says, as if full of fire and brilliant light surrounded him. And this, of course, is God. And God speaks to Ezekiel out of this amazing scene. And he says, son of man, stand up on your feet and I will speak to you. I am sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation, and you must speak my words to them. So God speaks to Ezekiel, and he commissions him to speak to this band of exiled Israelites that are now living with him in Babylon. And then he says to tell them, and importantly, to enact a number of scenes that explain that disaster and destruction is very soon coming on Jerusalem. And so God tells Ezekiel to enact this coming destruction and to explain it by doing things like lying on his side, tied up with ropes for a year, to represent the shackles that were coming on Israel for her rebellion. And then to paint a sketch of Jerusalem on this kind of baked tile and set up a scene of a siege against it to highlight uh, that an attack on Jerusalem by her enemies was coming as a sign of God's judgment against the people. And then he was to cook up these tiny portions of food on animal dung to represent how desperate for food people will become during this upcoming siege of Jerusalem. 
and so on. And in different ways, these street dramas that Ezekiel is performing are meant to symbolize to the watching people that God has judged against Jerusalem for its idolatry and wickedness, and that the Babylonians are soon going to return to Jerusalem, and this time they're going to utterly destroy the city. And even worse, they're going to lay waste to the temple, to the place of God's dwelling with his people. And this is obviously serious at so many levels, because not only was Jerusalem and the temple the dwelling place of Yahweh, the God of Israel, and the place that he would meet with his people, but also one of the promises over the people at that point was that the nations would come to Jerusalem and gaze upon the glory of the temple and see that God is with his people and that these nations would be brought into the worship of God. So it was unthinkable that the temple and the people would ever be destroyed. But God gives Ezekiel a second vision which explains the depths to which the people have sunk and the utter corruptness of their worship, not only sidelining God as they so often have, but in setting up worship in the most holy place. God takes Ezekiel in a vision to the temple in Jerusalem and he shows him what's going on. Ezekiel 8 verse 5, God said to me, look towards the north. So I looked and in the entrance north of the gate of the altar, I saw the idol that provokes jealousy. There, in the courtyard, in the temple of Yahweh, Israel's God, who has saved them, rescued them, formed them, loved them, is a giant idol of a false god being worshipped. It's not even being done in secret. It's the worst kind of rebellion. It's a direct contravention of the first and most important commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Next, Ezekiel 8.10. So I looked, and I saw portrayed all over the walls of the temple all kinds of crawling things and unclean animals and all the idols of Jerusalem. What we see here is mixed in with the worship of God is the animal cults that the Israelites had learned from their neighbors, the Egyptians, and the worship of serpents and things like that. A direct contravention of the second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an image in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. The third thing he sees, Ezekiel 8.14. Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord, and I saw women there mourning, worshipping the god Tammuz. Inside the temple courtyard, not, not down in the alleyways in the old city in secret, but in the temple courtyard, the women of Israel are worshipping the fertility god Tammuz, right in front of the presence of God. Fourth thing, Ezekiel 8.16, between the portico and the altar were about 25 men, with their backs towards the temple of the Lord and their faces towards the east, they were bowing down to the sun. This time, it's near the altar, the place where man was to offer up sacrifices and gifts to the one true God of Israel. Right in that place, the men of Israel have turned their backs on God to bow down to the sun God, like their Egyptian counterparts who worshipped the sun God Ra, the great mistake that the people of Israel made was that they relativized the one true God. They made him just like another thing. They grew complacent, and God became increasingly sidelined in a culture 
that decided it was best to have a little bit of all the gods. And we would do really well to learn from this mistake because it's in the human heart to do so. We are prone to relativizing God, to living exactly how we want to, to making choices that suit number one and setting up our lives and our plans in ways that we think will satisfy us and provide comfort and security and then kind of sprinkling a little bit of God on top. But as we see here today, God, God is not a hobby. He's not an add-on. The idols may have changed, but the heart hasn't. I doubt anybody here this morning bowed down to the sun god or to Tammuz this morning. But the reason that people did then was to secure weather for the harvest and fertility to the land, to call out to worthless lumps of clay and wood to provide what God himself had already promised. And lest we fall into the same trap ourselves, we should ask ourselves, what am I seeking? What am I giving myself to? What am I bowing down to? What am I inadvertently worshiping or building for myself that God has already promised out of his great love for us? Is it money or sex or power so that you can satisfy that inner ache to be safe and accepted and acceptable and loved? God already has that one covered. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you, understands you, knows you, loves you. God made you. Strand by DNA strand. Do you think he isn't interested in you? Do you not think that when he sees our shame and our idolatry and sent Jesus to die for it and to cover us and to draw us close, that that wasn't the act of ultimate safety and acceptance and love? And so, naturally, set against all this brazen idolatry, in Ezekiel 9.9, God says, the sin of the people of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. That's an understatement. The land is full of bloodshed and the city full of injustice. So I will not look on them with pity or spare them, but I will bring down on their own heads what they have done. God's judgment against Israel is secured, and it's going to be devastating, and no one will escape it except for one concession. Listen to this. There will be a reprieve in Ezekiel 9 verse 4 for those who grieve and lament over the detestable things that are being done in the city. Now, this is crucial to understand because in a declining culture such as theirs or ours, it isn't enough to just avoid the wickedness around us, to turn a blind eye to the injustice and violence and godlessness in our society. We are called to defend the gospel and to contend for what is right in our own declining culture, to grieve and to lament the detestable things that are being done, and to speak out and to write papers and lobby MPs and pray for all that opposes God's ways to cease and for the righteousness and the kingdom of God to be established in the darkest places. That's why we often pray and speak out about oppressed situations or teach about the decline in all sorts of moral and ethical issues that press on the witness of the church. It's why we serve the poor and the isolated. We're not just burying our heads, but grieving and lamenting and doing something about godlessness and darkness in our age. The next thing Ezekiel sees in uh, Ezekiel 10.18 is this. Then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple, and God's glory leaves the temple for the first time. 
and leaves the people. And it's like God is saying, okay, you've driven me away with your wickedness and your idolatry right in front of my face. And now not only will the surrounding nations attack you, but I will not protect you from this. In fact, I'm going to use this as a means of judgment against you, and you will face disasters such as you've never seen before. And we're left wondering at this point if God is just finished with Israel for good this time. But even here, incredibly, God does not give up on his people, which is why his glory appears to Ezekiel on the banks of an obscure river in the middle of Babylon in the presence of exiles because he loves us and he promised himself in covenant to be with us, to never leave us nor forsake us. And so even though his presence and glory has always been in the temple, what we see here is a God whose justice not only punishes wrongdoing, but is prepared to enter into that punishment with his people, to go into, in this case, exile with his people. I find this an astonishing observation on the depths to which God is prepared to stoop, to be with, and to make a way for his people. And in spite of all this idolatry and absolutely deserved judgment that is coming on the people, in the final part of this vision, God gives Ezekiel a glimmer of hope for the future. Ezekiel eleven seventeen. while they were sitting in captivity in Babylon, God says, there will come a day when once again I will gather you from the nations and bring you back from the countries into which you've been scattered, and I will give you back the land of Israel again. I mean, you think, how many times will God forgive this people? Until you realize this people is us. We're all rebels against God. We're all idolaters. We all have corrupted the worship of God with the worship of other things. Our sin, our lack of trust and dependence on God, our striving to elevate ourselves and to desperately prove to ourselves that we are worthy of love and affirmation. And all the wrong places that we go looking for those things that cause distance between us and his perfect affirmation and love and protection of us. And that we all need saving from this situation. And what's made the difference for us is that God, in his mercy, has offered us forgiveness and offered to bring us close, to gather us from the nations, so to speak, into which we have fled from him and been scattered into. He offers us unmerited and ongoing opportunity to do it differently and to turn to him. Even in the midst of all this mess and destruction and captivity against Jerusalem, we hear God's heart in this. Ezekiel 33:11. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? It's a good question. It's a great question to ask if you find yourself running from God, the author and sustainer of life. Free offer of grace to you this morning. Why will you die? He takes no pleasure in that. He'd much rather you turn and be saved. Shortly afterwards, Ezekiel receives the tragic message that Jerusalem and the temple has been utterly destroyed by the Babylonians, who will now bring many others into exile in Babylon. That everything that Ezekiel has prophesied has happened. This is the year 586 BC, and it's the lowest point in Israel's history. You would have just been traumatized and bewildered if you were a captive leaving Israel, the city of God in chains, looking behind you to see the temple lying in ruins and the city in flames. 
But God has already promised that there will come a day when he will restore the fortunes of his people. He said that back in chapter 11, when his glory left the temple. And sometime later, he fleshes out this promise, and he says to Ezekiel that a day is coming when he will again gather his people and restore them and drive away their enemies and love them. Listen to what he says in Ezekiel 36, verse 24 onwards. He says, For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land that I gave your ancestors. You will be my people. I will be your God. That's a great summary statement over those of us who've said yes to God and been saved. Our hearts have been cleansed by his life-giving water. Our inner self has been renewed by his spirit. We are his people. He is our God. That's what he's promised, and that's what he's like. And then God shows Ezekiel another vision in which he enacts his promise. This is an extraordinary prophetic picture. God takes Ezekiel to a valley, and this valley is full of skeletons, dry bones. Ezekiel 37, verse 1 to 10. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord, and he set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me to and fro among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, son of man, can these bones live? I said, sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones. Speak to the bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared in them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. This is a beautiful picture of how God is not only going to bring back his captive people from Babylon, but also points forward to how God will one day save and bring life to a captive people like us, about how he brings life and purpose to those who are cut off from him and spiritually dead. Ezekiel has asked, can these dry bones live? And of course, by every human effort, the answer to that question is no. Dry bones are as dead as it gets. That's the state we found ourselves in prior to the saving work of Christ in our lives. In the New Testament, we're told that before Christ saved us, we were dead in our sins. Dry bones, living in obscurity in a deep valley until the Spirit of God moved on us and opened our eyes to our deathly state and breathed into us and brought us gasping into new life with Jesus. God is gathering his people 
He always has done. He's doing it for Israel in the midst of the darkest and lowest moments, and he's been doing it ever since. That was what he always promised back in Genesis, and God will always do what he promises. There's a beautiful picture of it right here this morning as we gather as a church. He has brought us out of obscurity, gathered us from the faraway places where we found ourselves, breathed his spirit into us, cleaned up our hearts by removing our sins as his son went to the cross for us, given us peace, knitted us together in community and family here in the church, a vast and mighty army for the purposes of the gospel for all ages. Look how it works. The word of God is spoken over dead situations, and then God breathes his spirit over them. Word and spirit. The word of God is life for our dry bones. The spirit of God is life for our dry bones, for our dry situations. It's hope in hopeless situations. It's freedom from the captivity of sin. It's life for the spiritually dead. Word preached, spirit empowered. That's who we are at Gateway, people of word and spirit, belief and trust in his word, dependency on his life-giving spirit. And then we come to the final vision in the book, Ezekiel chapter 40 to 48. This time, God takes Ezekiel up to a high mountain, and he gives him another vision of the temple. Now remember, at this point, the temple itself, the actual temple, lies in ruins. The glory of God has departed, but God has promised restoration. So in this picture, God shows Ezekiel a picture of a restored temple in Jerusalem, except this time it's much, much more grand than before. And it's huge, the size of 13 English cathedrals. And God takes Ezekiel on an elaborate tour of this new temple with a new priesthood and a new altar and a whole new system of worship. And then gloriously, we read this in Ezekiel 43, verse 1 to 5. He brought me to the gate facing east, and I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters, and the land was radiant with his glory, and I fell face down. The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The promise of restoration of the temple of God, the restoration of the people of God, and the restoration of relationship with God is marked by a return of the glory and presence of God to the place where he meets with his people. And then we see water start to trickle out from under the altar of the temple and out through the doors and over the steps. Let's read on. These are some excerpts from Ezekiel 47. The man brought me to the temple entrance and I saw water coming out from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. From the outer gate, water was trickling from the south side. The man measured off a thousand cubits, about 450 meters, and led me through water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to the waist. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. Verse 6, then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. Verse 8, sorry, verse 7, uh, verse, verse seven. when I arrived, I saw there a great number of trees on each side of the river. Verse 8, where it enters, 
the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the dead salt water fresh. So wherever the river flows, everything will live. Where the river flows, everything will live. From the place of the presence of God, a river flows, a river that flows through the land that brings life and healing and fruitfulness every place it goes. In this vision, the river starts as a trickle from the altar. And by the time it reaches the sea, it's a mighty torrent. And look where it goes, straight into the Dead Sea. And as it goes, sweeping up every dry situation in its path, causing life to spring up around it. It brings life even to the Dead Sea and to everything in it. Verse 11, the fish in that Dead Sea will be of many kinds, like the fish in the Mediterranean Sea. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit, because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food, and their leaves for healing. If you want to live, if you want to see life and healing and fruitfulness spring up around you into dead and broken situations, get in the river. Position yourself before God from whom this river flows. Bring people with you. Bring relationships with you. Bring brokenness and addiction with you. Bring despair and shame and guilt and every other deathly thing with you and let the mighty river of the Spirit of God wash over you and over every other dead thing that crowds in around you. If you want to live Get in the river. Let Ezekiel 47.9 be your rallying call, your personal motto. Raise it up like a flag over yourself and your friends and our culture and the world and let it inform your posture and your praise and your devotion and your prayer life. Where the river flows, everything will live. Everything will live. No dead situation, no dead person, not even death itself can withstand the life-giving waters of the Spirit of God. Jesus says almost exactly this to the dead Lazarus. Dry bones, rise up. Dead man, be alive. The river is here. The river is flowing. At one time, the promise was that the people would travel to Jerusalem, to the temple, to encounter something of God and his people. But now look what's happened. The river is on the move. Jerusalem has come to us. And then the final line in the whole book says this, and it's the most beautiful climax of the story we've just heard. As God shows Ezekiel this rebuilt temple with his glory and his presence over it, and this life-giving water that flows from it, this is the final line of the whole book, Ezekiel 48:35. And the name of the city from that time on will be, the Lord is there. The Lord is there. The greatest prize of all, the highest goal of humanity, the promise of the Christian life and the conclusion to God's story with his people for all time is this. The Lord is there. He is building a house for his name with his people. The Lord is there. And this new temple, this city where the Lord is with his people is full of Eden-like pictures with 
fruitful trees and life-giving water that flows out of the, pr- out of the presence of God and into the surrounding areas. Remember the the living fish in that Dead Sea were of many different kinds when the water flowed. All sorts of people brought in, and the presence and life of God spread throughout the land. That was always the plan. That was always the intention of Eden. Go forth. Bear my image in the world. Multiply yourselves. And as you do so, you'll multiply my image into all of creation. Fill up creation with my presence and my glory. Bring others into the family. That's why... In the closing chapters of the Bible, we see Eden restored. The hope of the nations, the hope that we hold to, reaches its climax. And it's why when we read it, especially the final two chapters of the book of Revelation, we we see such Ezekiel-like language used again. Revelation 22, verse 1 to 5, final chapter of the whole Bible. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great city of the street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. There will be no more light. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. That's us. That's the future hope for all those who say yes to Jesus now. And then the great irony of Revelation 21, 22, in light of everything we've talked about this morning, John says in that place, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord Almighty and the Lamb Jesus are its temple. There will be no need of a temple since in that place, Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is there. Brothers and sisters, Ezekiel tells us and Revelation makes clear that there is a river that flows from the throne of God, the river of God offering and bringing life and peace and salvation and joy and wholeness to all who find themselves in its path. That river has always flowed. That river will always flow. It flows today. And all you have to do to receive its life-giving gift is step into it, to step into Jesus today to take those lifeless situations and those lifeless relationships and your lifeless soul and maybe for the first time your lifeless heart and bring them into the river of life that eternally flows from our God and say yes to him. At the cross, Jesus made this possible for you. It's by his wounds that we are healed. It's by his death that we live. It's by his sacrifice that our sins are removed from us, that our dry bones can be animated by the Holy Spirit of God. And now all of us can say, and so far as our standing with God goes, wherever the follower of Christ goes and whatever situation they face, Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is there. What incredible hope we have in the gospel. Isn't this good news? What incredible hope we have in Jesus. What incredible mercy and forgiveness we have in the Father. What a glorious invitation has been extended to us, to all of us, to come and be where the Lord is. Gateway, our God is with us. Jehovah Shammah. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that what has been afforded us through your death on the cross is an ability for us now to step into the river of God that flows and brings life 
I thank you that it was your death on the cross that took away our sins and opened our eyes, has allowed us, through that work of the Spirit, to see the sorry condition of our sinful state and see the glory and the beauty and the majesty of the risen King Jesus. And I pray today, Lord, that where there might be any situation amongst us which is dead or on the verge of death or has never even been brought to life in the first place, Lord, I pray that the river would flow. Holy Spirit, would you flow? Would you flow over us like a mighty river, like a torrent that brings life and healing and fruitfulness wherever it goes. I pray that you would flow into lives. I pray pray that you'd flow into hearts. I pray that you'd flow into minds that are broken this morning. River of life, Holy Spirit, come, I pray. Help us to glorify the Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.